Good Wednesday morning, and today we'll be talking with Dr. John. Uh, just as a little thing to pull back the curtain a little bit, John and I do this every Wednesday morning. Today's Thursday, actually. We had to bump it. I'm actually a wedding videographer, so I just finished up a week traveling to Hawaii. I ended up um, doing the last wedding of my year, and it was really fun because at the end of it, I had a friend who was visiting who lives in Hawaii, and we ended up swimming with manta rays at 9.30 at night in the pouring rain out in the middle of the ocean. So it was quite the experience. And now I'm back in Boise, Idaho. It's 20 degrees. When I picked up coffee this morning, it couldn't roll down my window. And so it was very interesting to try to make a <laughs> transaction with somebody out the window. But here we are. Welcome to uh, the coming winter. I remember some years ago uh, swimming off Jamaica and with another guy who'd been there many years. And he suddenly nudged me and pointed down. I couldn't see anything in the sand at the bottom. And he pointed to two little bumps. And then suddenly a huge ray took off. Uh, it must have been 12 feet across and just flapped away. Uh, it's an extraordinary sight to see, you know. Uh, uh, everybody needs to see awesome sights because in due course, the awesomeness will get to them. Um, but that is, uh, you know, so memorable. Anyway, uh, yeah, I, uh, apart from managing to rick my back so that I hobble at the moment, which hopefully will soon settle down. It's been a good week. Although uh, I didn't enjoy the fact that evangelicals obviously don't vote uh, in uh, the States as much as they should, and you pay the price. Uh, typically, I mean, uh, as we were saying just before we started recording, uh, my parents never voted. Uh, they prayed for the government every night, and not many people do that, and it was probably better than voting. Uh, but uh, we're living in fragile times and we've got to defend ourselves, which is the point of this podcast, really. Uh, when, not until my late 40s, when I became aware because of students that uh, what I took for granted was no longer true. Um, look, here's a list um, for those of you who listen. Uh, and you can probably send me some more to add to this. I've just labeled it, what was unthinkable two generations ago? And I've got, I wrote down 11 without stopping, which was enough, I thought. That marriage is not just between men and women. That homosexual activity is normal. That gender is a decision, not a biological reality. That adultery is okay. That there are no limitations on what you can do. That equality of outcome is possible. That justice should be primarily about groups that physicians cannot have conscience rights, that race is the primary moral issue of our age, that we can invest, we can invent our own morals, and that science can solve all the problems. Every one of those, of course, is false and can be easily proved to be false. And yet, I don't think any of them would have even come up in conversations, certainly 20 years ago and probably less. You only have to imagine sitting down to, to Sunday lunch with your uh, great-grandparents, uh, meeting them for the first time, so to speak, and then they say, well, what's going on? They would not believe what's going on. And we as Christians carry on in exactly the same format with asking exactly the same questions as we did when I was a child, and none of the ones that mattered. So... I believe the, the story was true. Uh, uh, I guess what I was gifted with is a certain amount of cynical intelligence, even as a little boy. And I was always interested in history. 
So even reading before I was pubertal, uh, I knew that Christians had died in the hundreds of thousands rather than throw a bit of perfume into a fire in pretend, pretended worship of the, the emperor. They wouldn't do it. They preferred to be mass massacred, well, individually so, and they took their children with them because they didn't want their children to grow up as pagans. Uh, we're not in the same league as those people. And to be motivated like that, it had to be true. It was the most important thing that had happened in their lives. We don't see it that way. I've just been reading uh, Dorothy Sayers' uh, letter to the, oh, what is it? Uh, letter to the Fallen Church or the Decaying Church. I've forgotten the title at the moment. But the opening chapter is about the drama of the story that we say we believe. And she says, the problem is people just don't see the drama. That the God who made everything decided to come into this world as a human being because we'd screwed up and he wanted to get us out of the mess we had made. If that's not a drama, I don't know what is, she said. It's a beautiful account. And being Dorothy Sayers, she writes with a, a very elegant pen. But we behave as though, well, the, the church is something you do because it's a good thing to do. As the Victorian poet put it, at church on Sabbath to attend will serve to keep the world thy friend. Oh, that would happen, wouldn't it? That's the phone. I'm going to have to stop because it will go on. Hang on. Depending on who you are, it might have been a really long time since you heard a telephone ring in a house. I know. We have never had one as adults, me and my wife. Um, but I do miss it as a kid. We get a robocall that doesn't answer at nine around this time every day, and I don't know how to stop it. If anybody knows how to stop it, leave a comment on the podcast. <laughs> So, uh, back to where I was. Uh, uh, the, the church doesn't have the excitement that Dorothy Sayers says it should. And she describes how interesting she found it to be when she talked to young people, this would be around the time of the Second World War, who couldn't believe what she was telling them. They, they were ready to be excited. Uh, but no, they never thought of church as a place where excitement happened. But for the early church, it did. Uh, story people keep asking me where where I got it from, and I, I think it's got to be in Livy somewhere, but I, don't, I can't track it down. But it's certainly not one I could have made up. That one of the, the most interesting pieces of literature that I've ever come across, only in quotation, was a letter from a Roman official to Rome uh, within the first century or so of the church, asking for advice about what to do with Christians. And his question was brilliant uh, and amazing, and we couldn't imagine it today. It could go on my list. He said, these Christians are growing in numbers, and they could be a political problem, but I don't know what to do about them. They are not doing anything bad, um, but I think they're dangerous. And he said, in particular, unlike everybody else, they don't get rid of their babies when they don't want them. In the ancient world, particularly in the Levant, there was even a place at the entrance to the city where you could dump an unwanted baby, and if somebody wanted to pick it up, fine, it was theirs for the taking. Otherwise, it died and the dogs ate it, or the dogs killed it and ate it, whatever. 
and nobody took any notice. Nobody. That was the way it was. There was no contraception. Babies are inconvenient at the best of times, uh, but we are made to, to, to reproduce. That's one of the key things that we're told to do. So these Christians, uh, without there being a single word in the New Testament about this, changed their habits. They began to see babies not as a problem, but as an incredible gift. Uh, because they want to go, go on into the next generation and to keep the story alive. And so uh, I say to audiences for the next bit, it's, it's interesting because he goes on and says, not only are they not exposing their own children, but they are picking up the exposed children of others. What should I do? Now, I think you can see what's going to happen here. You only have to imagine your parents sitting you down when you've reached the age where you can understand these things and you're in a family and they say, it would be a little girl in most cases, they say, look, you are a much-loved daughter, but God brought you into our family in a very, very special way. We were walking through the city and we came to the gates and you were lying on the ground by the gates where they put abandoned babies. And as we looked at you, the love of Jesus so flowed through us that we had to pick you up. And we're so glad we did. I mean, do you need to preach the gospel to that little girl? It's signed, sealed and delivered by action. So the early church, what astonished them, the rest of the world, as Luke writes in the Acts of the Apostles, he says, other people looked at the Christians and said, Behold how these Christians love one another. We were different. Uh, John Stott says of the, the central passage of the scripture in my life, the Sermon on the Mount, that if you want a single sentence to describe what the Sermon on the Mount is about, he says, you must be different. That's the opening sermon that our Lord gives is, you must be different. And he tells us how to go about doing it. So I grew up in an environment where I believed the story was true. Uh, my mother was always interested in missionaries, and when missionaries came to our church, she always offered to provide hospitality, although we had little money. So I got to hear amazing stories as a little boy of people who went to Congo with WEC that doesn't provide a salary and lived there for years, with God providing for their needs as they went along. Uh, Hudson Taylor's famous line, or was it C.T. Studd? I can't remember which now. I think it's Hudson Taylor, but it could be C.T. Studd. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's provision. And I thought, well, that's a good summary of what you've been talking about. So it stuck with me forever. Uh, uh, we're currently with the college going through that process of finding out whether this is God's work that we've been doing for the last 25 years. Uh, I think it is, but it, it's not financially viable and it's not advertisingly viable when I stop traveling because I'm the only advertising we can afford. We, we need some way to solve that problem. But that's not my problem from my point of view. That's God's problem. Um, and we'll see what happens. I think we've probably stumbled on the solution because you, there are many people, if, if the sort of people I would like to listen to this, do listen to it. One of the things they all recognize is that school is now a dangerous place because uh, the woke establishment have got into the faculty of education and they're teaching children 
in kindergarten or certainly in the first few grades that there are 57 different sexes or whatever they want to say. I mean, they're supposed to be teaching children to be functional in the world, not confusing them because the adults are confused, but that's what's happening. So it was the slow and steady realization that the world around me was changing and it was not changing in a good way. Um, I, I listened to great preachers because I liked listening to somebody who could preach. Uh, as a student um, for five years, I listened to uh, Lloyd-Jones, Stott, Dick Lucas, Ken Pryor, uh, um, people who preached proper sermons. I still remember some of them. I started listening to Lloyd-Jones. What did you make of him? He wouldn't go down too well in church today, would he? Oh, I'm super impressed. Some of the nuances that he had, I see in the way you talk or the yeah. way you explain things. Yeah. But also, I was going through Romans and, you know, he's taking one, two, three verses at a time and yeah. diving really deep into them and making sure that his congregation understands it before he jumps to the next part because yeah. he essentially says, you won't understand the next part if you don't understand this. Yeah. I was in his church on Friday evenings uh, when he was doing the Bible study on Romans, which you're listening to. And in five years, he got through one chapter. He took three months off in the summer, but um, and it was never boring. But, but he linked everything together. Uh, he didn't use narrative enough. He, he said that at the end of his life. He said, if I did it again, I'd use narrative a lot more. And I took that seriously, and especially when I realized that our Lord teaches primarily by storytelling. Um, somebody comes and asks him a good question, like the rich young ruler, and uh, Jesus, in effect, says, well, that's a good question. Hmm, let me tell you a story. And out comes the good Samaritan. And he says, now I think you've got something to think about. It is amazing that Jesus never wrote anything down. We can't find his handwriting anywhere. He only, it's only recorded as writing once, and that was in the sand. But his stories have had more impact on the history of the world than any other storyteller, by far. And those stories form a culture. And that's what I'm driving at in, in, in these to short talks, is a, forming a culture. We used to have one. You in America were particularly blessed to be unique in the history of the world, not in who you are, but with what you were gifted, uh, described by de Tocqueville so well. Uh, it's amazing that a French aristocrat had to come and tell you what you were gifted with. And he understood, uh, subsequently summarized by Chesterton, as America in the, in the 18th century and early 19th century was a country with the soul of a church. You were blessed that you were so big that you couldn't have a strong central government uh, directing everyday life because there was no telephone, uh, there was only railway, and it was a huge country. So that's why you're, you're so strong locally, why your July celebrations people join in because that's what you do in your society and you do it well. Uh, I love traveling in America because uh, I say you should make me responsible for advertising America because uh, the world thinks that um, Hollywood 
San Francisco, uh, New York, uh, Massachusetts, Boston are, are America, but they're not. They're the aberration. They're not America. Uh, the America I know it, in small places where I'm very happy to go because I always enjoy it um, is hospitable, uh, very hospitable, responsive, and they still have a community spirit to a considerable degree that you certainly don't find in the, the ghettos where uh, young black men are killing other young black men at an incredible rate. and. Black Lives Matter activists are trying to say it's the result of white supremacy when it's clearly not. Fortunately, people like uh, Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, who are black scholars, and Tom Sowell and several others, are making case, no, it's not. It's not about race, it's about culture. And that particular culture at the turn of the last century, uh, illegitimacy rates amongst black families, not the last century, the... the <laughs> I guess shows how old I am, in the early 1900s, um, the, the illegitimacy rate in white and black families was roughly equivalent. And before silly things like minimum wages were brought in without thinking carefully, as Tom Sowell points out, a black boy in his teens was more likely to have a job than a white one. Uh, minimum wage destroyed those jobs and therefore destroyed what every teenager needs. They need an objective that requires money and they're told to get a job to do it. Because they really want the bicycle or whatever it is they want, they learn to get up at six in the morning and be at work at seven or whatever it is. They learn all those disciplines. They're not actually bothered about the wage. They're bothered simply about how long will it take me to get my bicycle. But that's an important learning experience. Now, it's not happening, so they hang around on the streets, form gangs, and start killing one another. That's a cultural decay, and it is caused by the government. How did we get there because of minimum wage? It's Sol does it beautifully. You'll find him uh, talking about it, not infrequently when he's interviewed, he's asked. But the essential feature is that people thought that minimum wage would be a good way of increasing the income of the poor. But it didn't work that way. Because what minimum wage actually did was to make some jobs no longer viable. So when I was young, if people went to the cinema, I never went to the cinema because my family was like that. But a young man or a young woman would show you to your seat with a flashlight. But as soon as minimum wage came along, that became in a business which is always a bit marginal, the first thing to go. It couldn't be afforded. Uh, the kids who did it, they a few dollars was fine by them because it went into their fund and in due course they'd get the bicycle. But now that disappeared and there was no replacement. So instead of having young male, particularly males, uh, puberty are dangerous if, they're not, if they've not got jobs to do that they want to do because there's an incentive to do it. And now they get the money by robbing and doing all sorts of other things and destroying their own lives. Amazing that that happened because of minimum wage not being thought through. Nobody asked Tom Sowell's questions. Okay, it sounds like a good idea. Can you imagine any spin-offs that will be bad? Well, he could, and he saw it happen. Um, we don't change things that have been around for a long while without having good reason for doing it. My uncle's passing away of cancer, and I made a trip back to Seattle with my video cameras to interview him and ask him questions. 
and just document his story. And one of the things that we talked about was him and my other uncle Wayne had a paper route as a kid. And I just thought, oh, paper route, you go through papers. But I had no idea how it worked. They would have to figure out how many papers they wanted to buy. They were not employees. So they're just kids on their bikes. They're essentially working as contractors. They would buy a certain amount of papers, go deliver those papers, also go to those doors, knock on those doors and try to get payment, right? Like monthly payments from these people. It was amazing. They didn't make that much doing it. That was the way the world was. I mean, I used to go and work on a farm in the holidays. Uh, the first thing was to get some money so I could go off on my bike. And But I, I that had to be planned and organized and... I enjoyed doing that and I went all over Europe before I went to university. I started uh, with a hundred mile trip to round the Cotswolds two days and then every holiday, Easter and uh, the summer, I would do another one. Scotland, the Lake District, uh, west of England and then I went across the Channel to first of all just a short one in Belgium and Holland a bit of Germany and then all the way down the Rhine Switzerland Vienna all as a teenager because there wasn't a lot of traffic on the road after the second world war and it was actually quite safe and I had to send the deal my father had to bully my mother a bit to say look he's, he's responsible and he'll take he'll go with a good friend and he'll do it properly how old were you I started at 12 you would go on multi-day bicycle trips Multi-day trips, yeah. I would go for three weeks on the continent. On like a BMX bike? No, no. Um, just an ordinary bicycle to begin with. Uh, I bought myself a nice one after a while by earning some money and saving money. I, 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 I was so fit I had no idea. I rode 100 miles a day and thought nothing of it, you know. On the Saturday afternoon, I would ride the 20 miles to Stratford and back in two hours. With history all around me, I went down a Roman road for part of the trip and past Shakespeare's birthplace, past the, the big domain of the some rich family that planned gunpowder plots and ended up at Shakespeare's house in Stratford, then turned around and came back. And where would you sleep? Oh, there's a thing called the Youth Hostel Association in, in Europe. So there's youth hostels. You can find them all over and you can book saying when you're coming, which is what I had to do. So they knew where I was going or what I was doing. I, I didn't learn till my mother, well, I was reminded when my mother died and found all those cards that I, I didn't remember going to Luxembourg, but I'd sent a card from Luxembourg. So I did go there. Different world, totally different world. And what underlying it were all the things that were taken for granted and people didn't know where they came from. And this is what we're really talking about in these podcasts is how does that happen? And why I wanted us to start in Genesis is because uh, the worst thing that's happened to us and is happening at the moment in huge, hugely to the young, exacerbated by COVID and the lockdown where they're left to their own devices and screens is that they don't have a story that's big enough to allow them to grow up, so they're not growing up. They're, they're, they're not becoming men and women as they should be because the culture has lost its way, uh, big time. So they believe, without anyone ever proving it to them, that God is unnecessary. And that is simply not true. Uh, the, the last one on my list there that, science uh, can solve all the problems. Science couldn't even get started if there hadn't been faith. 
in the sense that we know it, modern experimental science began really, in my view, in the late 13th century. And think about it for a moment. I, I got to this through going to Africa. Um, uh, I was privileged to be part of a group that worked out how to bring back to health 10 pound two-year-olds, severely malnourished children. Uh, absolutely fascinating uh, job. For seven years I had this amazing job with a group of others who came and went, but three of us stayed all the way through, four of us stayed all the way through. Um, we'd picked it up where they'd already got the mortality rate down from about over 50% to about 30%. But we went the whole way, and when I left Jamaica in uh, 79, the last 100 babies to go through the unit before I left, we saved every one. So we'd done the job. And the proper treatment is so counterintuitive that mission trips to places where there are malnourished children are usually dangerous to the children because the proper treatment is so counterintuitive. But that's beside the point. Um, we'd done the science. We'd shown that even the worst babies could be saved. If we kept a baby alive for six hours, we were going to save it. Um, because it had lived in a malnourished state. It had been inadequately nourished since it came off the breast, which was usually 18 months before. So for 18 months it had been inadequately nourished, but was just about alive. And we learned how to reverse that process. So being scientific, thinking that science could answer the questions, I presumed that I would watch the decline of malnutrition very quickly. It didn't happen. I used to give graduate students the, the task of finding out a nutrition, finding a nutrition education program in Africa that had worked. I, I knew there weren't any. Uh, if you put into the evaluation the requirement that you remove all higher level education, expatriate input, all input from the environment where malnutrition is occurring and see whether anything survives the removal of those people. Can it be indigenized? Um, like Christianity indigenized saving children's lives, that was a story that came into their lives by the Holy Spirit and changed it. And that education worked just like snap, done, um, and changed the whole demo demography of the Western world. But um, this wasn't happening. And a few years after I left Jamaica, about seven years later, uh, I was bullied into going to Africa again to help a missionary set up a missionary hospital improve their treatment of malnourished children. I didn't want to go uh, because I knew there was no literature showing that nutrition education worked. But I was bullied and I went. And there's a whole series of stories. But the essential thing was that the first year we were there, we went for a year in the first instance. And all my children worked for me resuscitating malnourished children. They could do it. Not at the, as well as we did it in Jamaica, but they were working, they were using a mud hut as their place to look after the children. Um, and they fed them and they got them going again. Uh, they, they all had children die in their arms, but that didn't do them any harm because they saved many more. And they were much, much appreciated by the Africans uh, who started naming their children after my children because of it. Um, so there are these strange English names, Jonathan and Kathy and Nicola in the middle of uh, the Itumbi Mountains. Um, but 
we came back at the end of a year or so and uh, I could already measure the decline in the program. When I left, it started failing, despite the fact that the person running it was an African who had a degree in nutrition from uh, an African university. And then was a moment of truth for me, uh, because one of the nurses I'd trained to recognize and treat malnutrition in its early stages, where it's very easy to do it, had his own child die of malnutrition. Now, that was an insult. And I said to him, what on earth happened? And he told me that he was going to lie by looking at the ground and not at me. So he gave me the answer I wanted, which is, I was slowly beginning to learn that uh, because they don't see the world that, the way we do, they know what we're looking for, so they give us what we're looking for. So he said, well, we didn't feed him properly, but I knew that he didn't actually believe that was the cause. So I went to my supervisor and said, uh, go and find out what he really believed. And of course, what he really believed was that an evil spirit had taken the child's appetite away. So he had paid for the witch doctor and the child had not been fed properly. And the child died. Now, don't laugh at that if you're tempted to, because we're getting close to the same state again. Uh, if you live in a world where children die randomly, apparently, in the first five years of life, uh, where you have the worst governments in the world and nothing is secure, uh, evil spirits make sense of that. We all need a narrative that makes sense of our lives, and we'll get back to the point of this whole thing in due course, but we are losing a narrative that makes real sense of our lives and made the Western world possible. So I was now facing the fact that it wasn't possible to teach what I wanted to teach in a way that worked because they didn't have the prerequisites. Uh, Gulliver's Travels, uh, Jonathan Swift was right, he has people trying to build the house from the top down in Brobdingnag. He could see what was happening. We're trying to reconstruct our world every now and again without paying attention to the foundations. Now we've got a generation that has no foundations, so we're in deep trouble. We no longer know how much of the scientific literature is fabricated. And if there is no God and it's all about you, why wouldn't you fabricate a paper if that advances your career? That's what's happening. Every now and again, it, it takes about 10 years to prove it, so that's 10 years income. Not a bad deal. So that's where we're at. Uh, trust levels are, are dropping precipitously uh, and smart academics are recognizing it. My favorite being Robert Fogel, now dead, Nobel Prize winner in economics, who wrote a book around 2000 about the, the loss of trust being the major problem that faces the Western world in the next 50 years. He's already proved to be absolutely right. He predicted the 2008 meltdown, which was... It was not a technical failure, it was an ethical failure, both on the government side and on the banking side. Um, you, you see it in medicine. Uh, trust levels are dropping precipitously, and justly so, because doctors who will emasculate a confused 15-year-old boy for money without thinking about what that 15-year-old boy is going to feel like when he's 25, and he's had, he would have had his pubertal growth spurt and not be a scrawny little kid who gets bullied, but now he's a eunuch dressed as a girl. That's not progress. Uh, but that's where we're at. So uh, 
I had to start thinking about that seriously. And that didn't appeal to my wife because I wasn't doing anything. Uh, I'd straightened out the paediatric ward, or not straightened it out, I helped it keep it going as it should, but it was back to square one when I arrived. So nothing of permanent value was happening at that level except the lives that were saved, of course. But I wasn't there to save individual lives. I was there to try and understand the problem of malnutrition, which if one did understand it in a real way would have a huge impact because most under five deaths in the developing world, malnutrition is a key element making it lethal. Uh, yeah, they die of an infection or they die of whatever, but if they hadn't been malnourished, they would have survived. So, fortunately, the mission uh, doctor, who's a good friend, uh, Tim Kratz, uh, said, no, I don't want you to spend all your time doing clinical medicine because I know you'd enjoy that, but if you can help us really get a grip on this, it will, it will transform the whole practice of pediatric medicine in Africa. So, uh, I... I didn't know what to do. Uh, I had a few clues, but um, I was sitting around doing nothing from my wife's point of view. And she said, what's the matter with you? You're not doing anything this year. You're not doing any more surveys. I said, no, I've got the data I need. I'm thinking, she said, it looks to me as though you're sitting around reading books you want to read and not doing anything to help here. I said, well, that may be wrong. Uh, but then she won. She said, at least you could do a Bible study with the the, the young men in the village who've been to higher education and come back and the only thing they come back with is the idea they're going to have a white collar job which doesn't exist in the village uh, but they won't get their hands dirty anymore sending them to university makes them useless parasites um, you can see that in many places in our world now people propounding absolute nonsense being paid large amounts of money for propounding it that's parasites living off the rest of us, the taxpayer. Uh, those who say that we shouldn't pay for education that doesn't have a benefit, they've got a point. The benefit may be a uh, long time in coming. But she said, you should do Deuteronomy. That's interesting. Uh, I think they'll like it. I had been introduced to what Deuteronomy was really about by some brilliant lectures by Bruce Walkey, and so it had got under my skin. And uh, so I started doing it. And uh, the young men loved it, and they brought their friends. And it was a bit slow because we had to go from uh, English to French to Swahili to the tribal language sometimes. But um, I'm sure I've told this story before, but um, God actually sent me a translator, which sort have. of shakes you up a bit. Yeah, it doesn't matter. People say, oh, I like hearing the stories again because you can then play them to someone else and you can watch their response and you get more out of it second time. So I'm not bothered about it anymore. But the the key point is at the end of that trip, the elders of the church had realized what I was doing and asked me to teach the whole tribe. So one afternoon I ended up teaching 6,000 people out of doors, Deuteronomy 4, 5 and 6, particularly 6, which is the role of the father. We'll come back to this in this sequence at some point. Uh, in the training of children. The reason Jews win academic prizes is that they have an academic upbringing from birth, but the, the Faculty of Education doesn't even have uh, the structure to recognize that. The stories that children inhabit determine whether they are capable of an academic education. And what the Bible does, and 
the key verse for, for Jews is Deuteronomy 6. Uh, Hear, O Israel, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your strength. And I ask audiences what comes next. And honest, biblically literate ones will say, and your neighbor is yourself. I say, yes, but not in Deuteronomy 6. That's actually Levit Leviticus 19. And Jesus quotes that in the New Testament. Usually he quotes Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy needs more explanation, which Jesus didn't want to give at that point, I presume. So, and they are these words, and they're, they're addressed to men. These things should be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children when you sit at table, when you rise up, when you lie down, when you go on a journey. And what the father's job is, because whether he likes it or not, he has a, children see their father differently than their mother, and there's an authoritative element to that. So if dad says going to Sunday school is important, but he doesn't even bother to go to church, it's not going to work. But most importantly, we need to transmit all the stories of the Bible to our children before the age of seven. And what we have done when we do that is give them the moral reference bank that is the foundational structure for Judeo-Christian civilization, which is what we actually live in, whether... Uh, it's decaying, so it's easy to neglect this reality. But the important thing about Jewish history, unlike any other national history, is they don't tart up their heroes. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. So a Jewish child going through the history of the Jews realizes that we get nine bad kings for every good one. So they take that insight without thinking about it, without working out how they did it, that intuitively makes them much more shrewd than the rest of us when they're bargaining with people because they say, it's nine to one on that this guy is trying to cheat me. I better find out. Whereas we teach our children the opposite because that's nice. We teach them in church to be kind, not to say anything that, that is unkind, but we should at least say that you need to speak the truth at all times. Truth is more important than being kind. In fact, it's unkind when a teacher doesn't tell a child the truth about what they currently want to do, whereas now they're taught to affirm anything they want. That's a disaster. So I learned, uh, I taught them at the end of the afternoon, I said, um, I'm your older brother in the faith. I know that this area of Africa was blessed with a revival in the 1930s, the Rwanda revival. And some of you alive today have memories of that. And I've heard people say, well, it was so, we danced in the streets with joy because we were set free from the fear of evil spirits to a degree. Not enough, it doesn't happen that quickly. But what it, nobody had taught them, as Martin Lloyd-Jones and Stott had taught me and others, how you are to build on that foundation. The way Christ comes into our lives, none of us really understand. But it's absolutely undeniable if it happens. It is who you are. Um, so that's a gift from God. As Jesus says to Nicodemus, you can't get to where you want to get to be a teacher like me from where you are now. Unless you are born of the Holy Spirit, you cannot comprehend the kingdom of God. The understanding of the gospel is not something we are capable of. It's a gift. And uh, when it comes... And I think God gives everybody a chance, but I'm not sure of that. Uh, that's his province, not mine. But it comes in under the radar, and if you're receptive, that's it. it it's a done deal. 
uh, if you grow up in a Christian home, it often takes much longer. Uh, often when you get to your 20s or when you start a family, there are various points along the way where you realize you're not doing as well as your parents because you've taken the gifts that come with a totally secure home. I mean, I grew up in a poor family, but I didn't know we were poor. Children don't. I mean, the first people to recover from the war in Rwanda were two-year-olds who, once their parents had a, a blue tarpaulin set up in a camp, they now had home and they started playing again. Uh, the parents were not going to recover like that. Uh, so I was loved, I was fed, I was watered, uh, clothed. Uh, all the things that mattered were there. Most importantly, I was loved and my I, I honoured my parents because I could see they were good people. Um, but I had to get to my 40s before. I mean, what I've just recounted, I, I was 47 when, 48 when that happened. And I began to realize, oh my goodness, the world that I love is going to fall apart because we're biblically illiterate. We don't have the story underpinning us. So my working class area of Birmingham, where nobody went to church, three families out of 400 houses, I think, went to church, that I know of. But we still kept the Bible in school, which you threw away in the 60s. Uh, and so there was a chapter of the Bible every day in school. We even had to recite Psalms as a class. We had to be able to do it oral recitation. And there would be one morning during the year in, infant, in elementary school where every class would stand up in front of the whole school and re recite their, their Psalm. I can still remember Miss Crockett coaching us to who shall go into the house of the Lord and he that hath a pure heart. And she, she got us excited about it. Um, so that was the normal education of many uh, young people. And even to this day, the Bible is still read in school for cultural reasons, because the people in Britain at least realized if you don't know the Bible, you can't read Shakespeare with understanding because you won't understand the metaphors where he invokes a biblical illusion, you're lost. Even kids reading Tolkien don't see what Tolkien is saying frequently because there are multiple biblical allusions in The Lord of the Rings in one way or another. You don't pick them up. You don't really understand. You enjoy the story, but not, you miss the meaning. So we are a society that knows every word that it uses, but not the meaning of those words when they're put together. So in what we've done so far in this series about bringing the mind together yeah, back into the church, the first it's got to be done by questions. Uh, and the first question is always the same. In the beginning, what or whom? Push back. Firmly and vigorously demand from the opposition that they respond. Which are you going to believe? We know, because we all believe the Big Bang happened, but it, it happened, what or who banged is the question. We don't know the answer to that. Uh, cosmologists and quantum physicists talk about God because they have no option in a way. Uh, they they're not like biologists who are still trying to pretend you can get by without God. They, they just glide over it. But in due course, it gets to them. So it's not surprising that there are many well-thought-out Christians at the, the higher levels of physics. That's the safest department to go to in the university if you want to keep your faith alive. 
um, I think it will be followed shortly by molecular biology for the same sorts of reasons. Uh, it's just too overwhelming and it can't happen by chance. Uh, we're not stupid. We've, we've got the most powerful explanatory story there is. It's not a problem to us that that's the way it is. It's what we would have predicted. Uh, and you get, I've already introduced you in this series to Leon Cass. I hope some people have bought reading Genesis for Wisdom by this stage. It's a long read, but it will change your life. But there's an atheist saying, I wanted to go back and understand why my grandparents, great-grandparents, had fallen victim to Marxism. He, he, at the time of writing that book, was not, didn't have an active faith. I don't know whether that's changed now. Probably it has. It will change, I'm quite sure. Uh, he says, we don't have meaning. Uh, 1987, Bloom's Closing the American Mind, another Jewish scholar of the First Order, not a Christian, but recognized, without the Bible, I cannot teach. Because I need my students to recognize the biblical metaphors, Old and New Testaments. We can only talk to one another in metaphors. We talk by showing one of pictures, just like with a cell phone, we did it with words, which is better because language is more nuanced than image. An image, what you see is what you get. Language is not like that, it's richer than that. And so it's not surprising that in the creation story, the big difference, one of the big differences between us and all the other creatures is that we have language, <coughs> language which deals with abstract things. Uh, Initially, there's no word from Adam in the first story. He doesn't say a word. Um, so Adam and Eve are there at the end, as far as we can tell, but they're not named. There's no language between God and man in the first story, just God's work of creation. In the second story, we begin to uh, open up on what really matters. And the first words that Adam is recorded as saying, or in fact naming words for naming the animals, but none of them were found suitable. And then he saw Eve in a different way. And he said, wow, in effect, not a highly advanced uh, piece of vocabulary, but you know exactly what he was seeing and what was going on in the beginning of abstract thought. And that is what makes us different. That's why Frost wrote The, the White-Tailed Hornet, uh, such a lovely poem pointing out that when we start thinking of ourselves as just animals, therefore driven by instinct, it takes away, instead of gives, it takes away our humor, our conscientiousness, and our worship. And that's a loss. Even Dawkins likes going to evening prayers in the Anglican service. He says he goes because it's beautiful, but it also has content. He can't listen to that and not be changed by it in the long run. But it, it's years before things that you saw and thought you understood suddenly become real in a different way. The Bible is the book for doing that. I mean, I read the Sermon on the Mount or heard it read many, many times, and then God got to me and it came to life. So it now takes me, if I, if I was to do uh, an exposition of the Sermon on the Mount, it would take me three hours. Um, that's where we're at. Uh, so giving our children the, 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 the narrative power to ask the question in the beginning what and, be, and showing them how you can say well it's either a mind or it's matter and it's not matter because we know that entropy is real so um, back to this uh, critical point uh, of where we've got to in terms of 
narrative. So uh, uh, Frost puts it, we were lost piecemeal to the animals like people thrown out to delay the wolves, only our fallibility was left us and this day's work makes even that seem doubtful. I mean, the anger at George Floyd and all that sort of thing, totally legitimate in many ways, but not set in a context that made any sense. If they thought of it as a cultural story instead of a, a racial story, I mean, we have 99% the same DNA as a mouse, you know. The, uh, uh, our DNA, just one little bit of it that determines skin colour is the only thing that makes race and some facial features, but it's a small part of the whole. What we have in common is vastly more. But what matters is not that, it's the cultural story we inhabit. And of course, the, the anti-colonialism, the anger, that I understand if you grow up as a black kid at the moment in the ghettos of Chicago, it doesn't look like a fair world. But getting angry is not gonna fix it. And you need to go back and think and work out why things happened and we'll, we'll do this over the the weeks that continue um, if they continue if people uh, support us sufficiently to continue uh, we'll work our way through that but it is an astonishing story uh, douglas murray's book on uh, the war on the west uh, is a good book to read that can read quickly and give you some sort of startup material but the war on the west sally your wife told me to grab that and I grabbed that and it's been, I was actually just talking to my friend about it this last weekend when we were in Hawaii, because it just sets a stage and a framework for something I've seen happening, but I couldn't articulate. He does it very well. And it's, uh, he's an ex-Christian uh, on his way back. He says, I'm 99% Christian. He and, uh, he and Peterson, uh, on a journey they're interacting with along the way, and there are multiple others as well, Dave Rubin as well. They realize that meaning matters. So, I mean, Jordan Peterson now does a Monday, he, he calls them Mondays of Meaning. Every week he does another video on meaning on Monday. How, how he keeps up the, the rate that he does, I don't know, but uh, he did burn out once already and he'll burn out again if he doesn't learn how to control the amount he tries to do, but he feels driven, I can see that. Um, what Douglas Murray is giving an account of is is well done. So, but. Uh, from the Christian point of view, the book to read at the same time is Leslie Newbegin's uh, Foolishness to the Greeks, because Newbegin, who went to India as a liberal missionary, came back as an evangelical, and the book is about what would a meaningful presentation of the gospel look like today? Now, he's writing 50 years ago, so you can put that alongside what what Murray is pointing. I mean, what, what gets to Gordon Murray and he He's not alone. Tom Holland is another example of a young man who's realizing as they do their academic work that all the things they cherish, they really love, came out of a Judeo-Christian history. Uh, classical music, uh, architecture. Nobody could build a Gothic cathedral like the Gothic cathedrals that were built without any hydraulic power or electrical power. You have to go and look at them to realize what, a, what an astonishing feat this was. Art. Science, experimental science, only happened in the Judeo-Christian world. And now you see angry young women, was the one I'm thinking of at the moment, in Cape Town University, for instance, going on about decolonializing science. Now, I understand what she, she wants to have, a sense that you could get it all from being black. Well, get rid of the black thing. Uh, get rid of the race thing and start thinking about culture. Two of the best 
students I've ever had anything to do with were black. It's got nothing to do with intelligence. If as long as they're properly nourished, we won't be able to make proper accounts of what interaction, if any, there is between race until uh, proper nutrition in Africa has been going on for some time. 45% uh, of African children don't reach their height potential. And that means their brain has also been inhi inhibited by growth. So that they're also they're doing very well and they're still not back up to proper nutrition in many cases. You see what's happened to them once they get here. They, they grow in height, they dominate entertainment and sports and the like. You know, you can see what's happening, but the, the long-term work of being a scholar, they're coming up there as well. We do have the Tom Souls and uh, John McWhirters and Glenn Lowry and others. Uh, it's only a matter of time. And then we can be, uh, we shouldn't even be thinking about race. Um, it becomes a, non, a, a, a meaningless category. It's only a correlate anyway. What we want is better education. In particular, in North America, uh, we all need to repent on the lack of fathering that's going on in all communities. And if that doesn't get fixed, there's no way that we will have better things going on. We, Sally and I were listening last night to Peter Thiel on uh, Uncommon Knowledge, talking about what worries him about the modern world is that there's nothing happening at a deep level. We're not making progress. We've stopped progressing. We're, we're just making more of the same to a very large degree. Uh, the science that did extraordinarily, absolutely new things up until the 1960s, but it, it's not going on in the same way. He's right. Read the history of science, how it got going. They started from nothing and what, what they were able to do within a century or so of the first experiment is just astonishing. We don't have the like today. Kepler, great Christian man who had an incredible life which would have destroyed anybody else's capacity to do anything. He had to start again time and time again because of the politics of the time and all the rest of his own uh, cussedness probably to a degree. But when he got Kepler's laws, he wrote in his lab book, a prayer of thanksgiving because he said I didn't discover these they were shown to me because he took seriously uh, an error of five minutes in the arc of M Mars which appears to do a loop viewed from Earth that loop of course is explained by the fact that both Mars and the Earth are going around the Sun it's an artifact it doesn't do a loop it only appears to do a loop because of the interaction of the two movements but for the first time uh, Kepler had his hands on data for which he knew the error. He knew it couldn't be more than or less than. Tycho Brahe was the first person to do that. He realized when you make a measurement, it's plus or minus. Uh, the better you get, you're narrowing down the tolerances, so they become less and less important. But the, the, the data that Copernicus worked with uh, had no such, he couldn't work out the difference between good and bad data. But with Tycho Brahe, he could. And so he knew that that was not the truth. It was an artifact. And it had to do with orbits. And ultimately, it confirmed Copernicus's insight, which wasn't, which had been made long before by many people. Uh, and he gave thanks to God for it. That sort of thing is, well, it's still happening to a degree. Every now and again, a Christian has a, 
a moment of insight which they recognise as being important and a gift from God. The double reading frame in DNA is one example of that. Yeah. Well, good to talk to you again and see you again next week. Thank you guys all for listening. Thank you again, Dr. John. If you guys are enjoying this, feel free to subscribe. If you guys have questions for Dr. John, you can do that in the links down below, or you can go to www.johnpatrick.ca forward slash ask. And with that being said, we will see you guys next week on Wednesday. Mm -hmm.